Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to once again welcome you to another edition of Spotlight Conversations, where we get the pleasure of speaking to jazz musicians, musicians, uh, poets, writers, anyone in the industry. Um, and we like to support all the artists because they definitely need our support. So I'd like to welcome a wonderful educator, a uh, musician, composer, researcher, and I don't know what else. She probably drives a school bus too. But anyway, she's just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> she's fantastic. And I'd like to just uh, welcome Kavita Shah to Spotlight Conversations. Hello. <laughs> you like that part about that? I tried, I, you know what? I couldn't hold back. I tried not to say it. She probably drives a bus too. I don't know if I should drive a school bus because I'm a <laughs> I'm a New York City driver. So oh wow, yeah. I don't know if you want me behind the school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for for taking time out from your schedule to uh, uh, to speak with me here in Spotlight Conversations. My pleasure. Um, you know, just let's get started by just you know telling us where you're from and and who were some of your early uh, uh, musical and and influences in life. Period. Um, I'm from New York City. I grew up in middle of Manhattan. And um, I had a neighbor down the hall who played jazz. His name was Patience Higgins. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, so Patience was one of my first introductions to jazz and the jazz world in New York. And um, I studied classical piano from about the age of five. I was always in music. I was always making music in my family and um, singing along to recordings. My parents were immigrants from India. They came to the US in the seventies and um, there was a lot of music at home, like classic American songbook. Um, they loved my grandfather and my, my father as well. They loved Frank Sinatra um also a lot of song-based music like the Beatles and um uh Simon and Garfunkel ABBA um a lot of the kind of like 70s soul music as well so I would say this very song-based music at home and um and also some musicals like My Fair Lady that was a, a big one so I was singing along, um, also Michael Jackson. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> a bit of a span, um, but I would say the thing that all of this music had in common was song, song form, and um, and I started playing classical piano from an early age, from around age five. But I started classes even earlier, around three, and then when I was ten, I joined the Young People's Chorus of New York City. And um, that was a professional children's choir. And that was the first place I was really introduced to jazz. Um, we did a song called A Tisket, A Tasket that mm. Ella Fitzgerald made famous. Yeah. And um, we also did How High the Moon. And so that got me into both Ella and Billy, um, Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, as they were, I would say, my two early influences in, in terms of jazz. And I also really liked very early jazz. I mean, I liked uh, big bands and um, Benny Goodman and um, very early kind of 
that sound, that sound that sounded like it was from another era, mm-hmm. uh, the little crackle in, in the recording, um, something in the voice just sort of spoke to me. Um, so that was, I would say, the early jazz that I that I was influenced by. And um, and then, of course, the live connection being through Patience and his band. Um, when we would go to family events where he was playing or um, just knowing that this was a, a living, breathing jazz musician in New York. Yeah. Connection. yeah. So, you know, and you, like you say, you grew up in Manhattan, so you're right in the middle, you know, the Mecca uh, of jazz. Um, so many clubs. I mean, even... Even myself, because I was never a fan of New York. It was just too many people. And I would get like paranoid when I go up there. I'm like, ah, it's like everywhere you turn, there's people, people, people. And um, but one thing that was really cool about it was the diversity, right? And um a friend of mine who's who since uh, transitioned, pianist Mogu Miller. Oh wow. And um um I did an interview with him for a spotlight on jazz and poetry and you know from his home and it was just amazing and he said hey uh you know it's getting late I gotta go to New York I'm doing a gig so I was like oh cool you know he said if you want you can come with me and I'm like oh wow okay all right <laughs> you know, so I just went I just followed right along with him you know and he was performing with Steve Teray um you know, Vincent Herring, Gerald Cannon, Dave Valentine. I mean, I couldn't believe that I was in the middle of this. I mean, you know, for sound check and all that kind of stuff. So um, then I got kind of relaxed with New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I was, number one, I was in my element. And number two, you know, everybody just to be, you know, names, big names in the in the jazz music to just, be treating me like a normal guy, you know what I mean? It was like, you know, wow. Well, okay. the funny I'm thing with, is, I'm with real people because you know. The funny thing is, for us, these are you know big stars, but um, to the average person, unfortunately, in the United States, we don't value jazz as much as we should, and um, these people are heroes, but we don't know who they are. And actually, speaking of a New York story. Um, when I was in my early 20s, kind of deciding whether or not I was going to pursue music professionally, I bumped into Sheila Jordan on the subway. Mm. Um, she was, I mean, it was, you know, this kind of serendipity thing where I just missed the previous train because I just missed the light um, crossing the street. And then by the time I got there, the train had left. So I walked down the platform and on the next train, the doors opened and she was just sitting right in front of me. Um, And I I went to her and she said, what, what did I do? Who do I owe? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think she was, I don't know. She was joking. I mean, she came from that era, but you know, I think also it meant a lot to her to be recognized because of course she's an NEA jazz master. And at the time she was, now she's 94, I believe, but she was in her 80s. And, um, and, but, you know, this is for me a hero. I mean, this is like the great, one of the greatest jazz singers who's living 
today. And um, she was just coming back from her doctor's appointment, taking right. the subway, you know. Um, so uh, that was a very special New York moment for me. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's the, the reason why I do this spotlight on jazz and poetry is because I recognize and I was raised with just like you. I was raised around this music. As a matter of fact, my parents had a back in the late 60s. And early 70s, they had a speakeasy here in Philly. And my dad was like a real, I mean, super famous uh, bartender, right? And he was well known, but they played the jazz. Well, they wanted me to play the jazz. Now, of course, I'm like eight, nine, 10 years old, and I'm upstairs, and you were talking about listening to the cracks and the pops and the music in the albums, right? And I had to, of course, I couldn't be around the adults. I was upstairs playing the music. They said, you know what music we want to hear. Just play that music. And, you know, I was playing Coltrane, Sarah Vaughan, Duke Ellington, you know, Mel Torme. I was playing all the really, I had no idea what it was. But yeah. how I learned about it was just reading the uh, the liner notes. Hmm. You know what I mean? And just listening to that music constantly. And little did I know, people were coming to my home that were famous people in jazz, like, mm. like um, Arthur Price. I, you know, he was a personal friend of my parents, Lil wow. Jimmy Scott. Wow. You know, came through, you know, anytime they were in. Where was this clay? In Philadelphia, here in Philadelphia. Okay. okay. Yeah. At, at our home. And I mean, you know, they used to have, they had the uh, pool table was converted into a craps table and a, and a poker table you know what I mean? And they had a bar down there, sound system down there. Um, you know, my mom used to cook all the food and stuff like that. I mean, look, even Dinah Washington, she used to, anytime she was in town, she would request my dad to come and bartend a party that she maybe had. Oh, wow. So, you know, being around that stuff, of course, you know, that's second nature to me. You know what I mean? And as I got older and when I started this program in 2008, I knew that it wasn't, the history of it was not taught or explained throughout the generations. Because back in the day, jazz was the dance music. Exactly. You know what I mean? So being able to get it through to the younger generation or the children or whatever is so important. And that's what I strive to do here. And speaking with you, um, you know, lends itself to how diverse music in general is, but jazz in particular, and how important it is. You know what I mean? Because you just mentioned yourself, you just mentioned all these, you know, big bands, you know, um, and stuff like that. Frank Sinatra, I mean, come on. Uh, you know, that's classic stuff. A lot of and people don't know that. It's interesting I because I think back to how did I get so attracted at that very young age to like early big band music and I don't have an answer for it. And I was also listening to hip hop. You know, I grew up with um, Biggie. That was my generation. And and I love him. And I, I know a lot of actually a lot of people don't know this about me. I know a lot of his lyrics by heart. I, I, 
feel I learned a lot about rhythm from him. People ask me all the time, like, because my music is very rhythmic and people ask me, um, you know, oh, did you, is that from Afro-Cuban music? Is that from Indian music? Is that from, how how did you learn all those complex rhythms? And for me, it comes from hip hop, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it comes from really understanding cadence and, um, and a lot of what I understand about rhythm and phrasing comes from from that. But I was listening to contemporary music. It's not like I wasn't, but I also enjoyed putting on my early jazz album yeah. or my Ella Fitzgerald album and just listening for hours. So I don't have an answer for why, um, except that it's beautiful music. And I think also there was this... Um, there was a sense of freedom in the music for me that for me, that's what jazz is about. I think that's what attracted me to jazz. I think also being a person of color, trying to understand my place in this country, uh, like even though I grew up in New York, which is very diverse, um, I experienced a lot of racism in my childhood and in my um, you know, public school experience in New York City. And I think understanding the African-American experience and understanding um, the history and kind of feeling some affinity to that or, you know, having be going through some experiences of discrimination and then sort of seeing like, oh, there's a place for that in this history. And there's a there's a music for that. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's a sound for that. And here's this place where you can be totally free from all of that stuff right. in jazz. And that's what it was in history. And there was like an opening for me in that. That's what it felt like for me as a young person, hearing that music, um, being curious about that music and, and feeling like some place of belonging in it. Yeah. And you, you mentioned hip hop, which is perfect. Because when I'm explaining to young people about, because the first thing they say is, oh, jazz, you know, I mean, that's for old people, you know, it's like, you know, so out there, it's intellectual, you know, and I tell them it's very accessible. You know what I mean? It really is very accessible. And it's a lot of young people that are playing this music. But I compare, I say, okay, hip hop, and that's what you brought up, right? Which was perfect. I say, okay, who you like? Uh, the human beatbox, Dougie Fresh. And they say, yeah, yeah, he's, you know, this and that. And of course, like I grew up on that, you know, listening to that too with my with my sons and daughters who are in their 30s and 40s. Damn, am I that old? Um, but I like that music too. But I said, you like Dougie Fresh, right? And they say, yeah. I said, well, listen to this. And then I put on Louis Armstrong doing heebie-jeebies. And he said, you know what? That's almost the same thing. I said, yeah, scatting. Yes, it is almost the same thing. Then one, one other comparison I like to make, I said, y'all like to do the battles, you know, battle back and forth, you know, two, two rappers or whatever. I said, now listen to this. And I put on Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. Mm. And I said, they say, yeah, I see exactly what you're talking about. So now the audience, I mean, not because of what I did, but at least in my community, the audience is getting more understanding of that music and the whole improvisation and stuff like that, especially with the poetry side. 
because Biggie was Biggie and Tupac were some of the most dynamic poets that you would ever, ever want to hear. But people always lean toward the negative, you know, things that, that go along or that went along with it. Unfortunately. Something I, something I think about with them is they they died so young. Yeah. So they didn't have the chance to rap at 40. And to, you know, yes, the things that they're concerned with at that time, at that age, they're very young. Right. So it's kind of natural that it's a little more superficial. Mm-hmm. Um, I was singing a lot of love songs at those age, right? That's what I wanted. I was into R&B and, but it's very different from the things that I'm interested in doing now. So it's only, it's like, we never got to see that evolution, but right. if you take some of the specific content out and you look at just the musical skills mm-hmm. um, and the musicality, you could only imagine what that would have been like had they been able to rap about more serious subjects, you know, right. later in life. You know, that's, that's I, you know what? I never looked at it from that angle before. What would they be like in their 40s? What would they be talking about in their 50s? And the same with, you know, all of the artists that unfortunately transitioned at a young age. What would it, what would it be like now? What, where would they have, you know, morphed into? What would they have morphed into? You know what I mean? Um, like, and, and I can't, it just, her name just shot across my brain, but she did something with, um, with Tony Bennett. May he rest in uh, uh, peace. Lady um, Gaga? No. Before that, she she was um oh man they did I know they did um oh man <laughs> I can't think of her name she she passed away uh, at a real young she hadn't even really got started okay uh, Amy Winehouse yes now I really loved her music she I was really amazing. loved her music right but like you said she transitioned at an early age. So what would it be like now? You know what I mean? Being a little bit more refined in the music and which direction would she have gone? You know what I mean? Um, So you can tell an educator. I can tell an educator when I'm speaking to one. (laughs) And you are definitely an educator because you're teaching me right now. No, you really are. You really are. And I thought, you know, I mean, nobody knows everything, but, you know, sometimes I think I know a lot of stuff. But that angle that you hit with, what would they be doing now? How would they sound now? What is it about education or being an educator that that you like? First, I think that I received a lot of wonderful teachings. Um, You know, I was coming up at a time where there was, still some relation to the older generation in jazz. A lot of those people have now passed away, but um, like the experiences I've got with Sheila, for example, um, were really rich because it's through telling. I mean, this is an oral music and this is an oral tradition and it's through telling stories and it's through sharing um, that we can move the music forward. And it's, it's also a way to give back those things that I I received um, in my younger years. So 
that's something that's important for me. It's like being a part of the lineage, being a part of the tradition, giving back what I received in the same way that people have been doing for generations in this music. Um, I also think uh, I know the difference between good teachers and bad teachers. I've had both. And I'm a very sensitive musician. I'm not a sensitive uh, academic. Like when it comes to my learning, I can sort of take criticism or I, I know what I want. My confidence doesn't really waver. But when it comes to music, I'm like hypersensitive. And I think music is something that's so personal and so sensitive and it requires um, love and sensitivity um, to help move it forward, especially for younger people. So um, I think feeling like I can try to make a difference and try to encourage people um, and, and not put any boxes on people the way that I felt in some of my education, like that was imposed on me, really trying to, to give people a chance, no matter where they come from or what their background is, um, to be the best person they can be. That's something that that I'm inspired by. So um, when it comes to, you know, my, my program is Spotlight on Jazz and Poetry. Hopefully you got a chance to go on the website and peruse yes. it a little bit. Um, but I always felt that poetry and jazz were married to one another, right? Um, the importance of each one to our cultures is so very important. Do you see, how do you see the relationship between jazz and poetry? It's um, it's an interesting question because I don't think I've thought about it very much, to be honest. The thing that comes up for me though is um, Brazilian music mm. because in the great music of Antonio Carlos Jobim, which is of course played by a lot of jazz musicians and he he himself was a jazz musician i mean it's considered jazz music he had um a strong relationship with the poet vinicius Gimorais, and all of their music was pretty much written together and there's a symbiosis that's so strong and so beautiful that is like one is just as important as the other. The lyrics and the uh, poeticism of it is as important as the music. And it's really a marriage between the two that makes those songs. Um, that's the place that like I think about it the most. And I guess I haven't thought about it so much in the American jazz context, but I guess that was also true in a lot of American music. I mean, you had the... Gershwin Brothers, you had Lawrence Anhart, Rogers and Hammerstein. So you had these kind of pairings where lyrics and music were coming together. Um, I can say as a, as a singer, lyrics are incredibly important to me. Mm. Um, and they inform for me everything that I'm doing with the song. I would say it's the most important part of the song. So if I'm arranging a jazz standard or or any song like I've arranged you know Stevie Wonder or Joni Mitchell it's it's kind of like the story that's dictating that musical arrangement for me and 
Um, also, um, improvisation for me comes with comes from the story and comes from the words. So often when I'm improvising, um, I hear the words and I hear the melody, but not just the melody, I hear the melody with the words. And it's like I'm improvising off of that or against it, or it's always in conversation with it in my head mm. um, or in my, you know, in my soul and my, because I hopefully I've incorporated it enough. I'm not thinking too much, but um, that's always there. It's like mm. this invisible line. So, and that's something that a lot of instrumentalists today, um, I think, miss out on because the great instrumentalists of the past, they used to know all the lyrics, partially because you were saying um, it was the great dance music. So it was the popular music of the day. But also, I mean, you take Dexter Gordon, for example, and like you can just hear that he knows the lyrics. Mm -hmm. You can hear that he knows it in how he's phrasing and what he's doing. It informs a lot. And I think it would behoove many instrumentalists today to learn the lyrics of the songs they're playing to understand the histories of the songs. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a great answer. Um, you know what that reminded me of because, and you had, you had brought up Frank Sinatra. It's just a fantastic lyricist. Just, just, he was fantastic with phrasing. Yes. And another person that was fantastic with phrasing and for the longest time, because of his voice, I swore it was somebody like Sarah Bond or something like that. And it was little Jimmy Scott. Mm. And he was another one that was just fantastic with phrasing. You know what I mean? I'm a big fan. I got, I got so much of his music. It's unbelievable. And before he transitioned, I got a chance to do an interview with him, but he was, he was older you know, so it was a little, it was a little difficult, but anyway, it was just a pleasure just to have him on the other line. You know what I mean? Little Jimmy Scott, I mean, come on. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Um, you know who my favorite is when it comes to phrasing is uh, Carmen McRae. Oh, yeah. You didn't know my. For me, her phrasing is, wow, just. And Joao Gilberto, when we're talking about the Brazilian music, I mean, you hear Joao Gilberto and his guitar is just moving forward and his voice is like in China and you're thinking, how does he do this at the same time? How does he keep the time? It's like two independent entities. Yeah. Um, so I, I hope that answers your question about poetry. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, um, but sticking briefly with uh, uh, Joe Bean, my absolute favorite song, and it's, you know, it's, like you said, it's been done by so many different people, but is The Girl from Ipanema. Really? <laughs> and my favorite rendition of it, and I'm going to, I'm going to send this to you so you could get a laugh because okay. I'm definitely not a singer. Okay. Okay. But the version that Lou Rawls did, oh wow! You know what I mean? It was just, and he did it on a live album. I think the album's called Tobacco Road. But um, it was just amazing that I just loved that song. You know what I mean? So I tried to sing it at an event that I had, and it was. 
I caught everybody off guard. Number one, they said he got enough heart to try to do this. But it was swinging. And the group that I had behind me, they were just, you could see in their faces, right? Well, I couldn't see their faces, but when I looked at the video of it, you could see in their faces that they were just having fun, like, oh man, clean this groove, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, that Brazilian influence, like you said, and I hear that in your music. I hear that, that Afro-Cuban, you know, um, Omar Sosa uh, type. I don't know whether you ever heard of him or not. Of course. Oh, okay. Omar is just, that's another one that I did an interview with too. I'm telling you, I'll be trying to hit everybody. But um, what I do is <clears throat> I take the the instrumentation, the music, and I blend it sometimes with poetry. Mm. You know, myself. Mm. That's what I consider my art. Um, and of course, you know, I get, you know, musicians, uh, uh, the ones that are still with us, I let them know what I'm doing. They be like, oh, go ahead, go for it. You know, um, like Roy Ayers, I did something with him uh, and he just fell in love with it. He was like, man, that's fantastic. Same with Pat Martino, uh, who's a Philadelphian. Um, he recently transitioned as well to guitarist. I mixed his music with a poet um, and it was so good to him that the next time he was performing at Yoshi's in uh, San Francisco, he invited this poet to the show and brought her up on stage and they wow. did a piece together, which was like, I was like, oh man, I had a little hand in that, you know. Um, yeah, but, I think it's also important to remember that that's part of the history um, of different phases of jazz. I mean, you think about like the beat poets, there was jazz around what they were doing. Um, Amiri Baraka, who I had the pleasure to know and meet, um, you know, obviously was very connected to the jazz community. And and um, so there's, there's a history of this relationship and maybe, and obviously with, you know, Thelonious Monk, but maybe, maybe the connection is about um, storytelling, and also improvisation to some degree, because how you're delivering a poem live to some degree, it, it varies from day to day, right? It's not, it's a performance. So there's an interplay with an environment or your feelings. Um, and in both cases, there's an aspect of storytelling happening. When you're performing, when you're, when you're performing live, um what do you what do you hope to convey to your audience and at the same token what are you trying to grab from your audience into what you're doing um to be honest right now i'm not i'm i'm really trying to focus on the song itself that's my focus so um, it's not like there's one thing I want to convey from beginning to end. My, I'm really trying to focus on the story in the song and what it's bringing up for me in the moment and how I can um, be as authentic as possible in my delivery of that story um or or what i'm feeling at the current moment and honestly i'm trying to let go a lot of the audience meaning they're 
I, I'm a person who I cares. I care a lot about other people. Like I said, I'm highly sensitive. I care what other people think. I want to please people. I want to um, take care of the audience. That's something they say a lot in acting. And I'm trying to let go of that because the more I can be in my experience and not worry so much about the audience, I think the more I'm giving to the audience actually, and the more they're able to take something from it, you know, but I will say I, I do try to take in the love, like, you know, when I get a standing ovation or I get a warm response from the audience, um, I don't want to take that for granted. And especially after COVID, I mean, it's, it's so special, the communion between the audience and the performer and uh, we need each other. And that energy does, of course, it feeds me. Um, and I love it. And so I'm trying to take those moments in and not take them for granted, just like really, really feel it, really appreciate it. But I feel more and more my job is to take care of the music and to take care of the song and try to push everything else out of my mind. It's not easy, but that's what I'm working on. Yeah, it's before, before because I'm retired now, but before I retired, and it's it, you hitting all the the key the key elements to actually what I've done in my life, but I worked as a respiratory therapist. Oh wow! So being in the middle of this pandemic was it was absolutely it was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable, and the part that was really unbelievable was was God allowed me to come away from that without having to without having contracted that because it was just it, it was scary it was scary and I could see once the smoke started clearing from that people were just ready to come out and just have a good time and just go listen to music and go dance with each other and you know oh man it was just like a a release like you said freedom um so have you seen a lot more people coming out to your events and that is and that does it seem to be like growing and growing and growing like that i have seen that and i think also there's um there's just more appreciation there's more love, there's more appreciation, there's more, um, I feel the need for it, the need for live music, you know? When I, by the way, when you were talking about the younger generations and jazz, a thought I had was that jazz is really a music that needs to be experienced live. Mm. Um, if you're discovering from the first time on a recording, it's totally different than the way that you might listen to hip hop, it's really different from seeing musicians play their instruments live and the way they play, the way they interact, the way they improvise. I mean, it's a, it's a very physical act and it's a very interactive act. And I think the way that your brain sort of perceives it, it's totally different live. So I, I think for the younger generations, that's actually very important. And I think the reason people are coming out to see live music again, people could just stay home and be on their computers or their phones. 
And a lot of people like the way they're working from home are doing that. But I think people need that. I think that's a very human thing. The way music has played a role in our, in thousands of years of, of our human culture, there is a need for that interaction. There's a need for that stimulation and, and, you know, giving and receiving, um, and I will say also one more thing. So like, even though I'm trying to focus on the music, I think that one thing that comes across in my shows and that I I am happy when I hear this from people, because I think that is something I want is, is joy. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's something that I was given the gift of in my music. I think it's something that I transmit and I do want to spread joy and and goodness in the world. So it makes me very, very fulfilled when I see that um, that reaches people. Now you, you said joy and number one, how many how many languages do you speak? <laughs> Nine. Nine <laughs> languages. That's unbelievable. I'm having trouble with English. And you got nine of them under your belt. I was listening to um, a song that you did, and you were talking about joy. And, you know, I don't know whether it means joy, but when I saw the video Uh doing this song, it made me feel that, you know, and I, I felt like that's what you were speaking about, joya. Yeah, so that's on my new album, Cape Verdean Blues, which is music from Cape Verde, West Africa. And um, Joya actually means jewel or gem. But it's funny because it sounds like joy and it feels like joy. And um, it's, uh, I feel it too, you know, like I definitely feel it I think you can feel it you know I feel it when I'm singing it I feel it in the in the video when I was dancing it and I I, I've been getting people we just did a 10-day tour in the U.S. and I'm about to go out next week to Europe and Africa and we got everybody to dance on that song and sing and clap and um and uh it feels good it feels good to like feel that myself and it feels good to give other people permission to feel that. I think sometimes people feel they have to sit or they, you know, even for myself, like when I'm in the, not just in the audience, but in life, I mean, life is hard, you know, and, and sometimes it's like, yes, it's hard, but it's okay to smile or it's okay to get up and dance. It's okay to move. It's okay to be happy too even in this difficulty um, or these challenges that we all face and so giving that permission to myself and to others is 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 really nice and maybe this has been even more since the pandemic because I think Mm -hmm. we all need it more yeah yeah and and you know sometimes I take it upon myself just to say now if you hear if this music makes you feel like getting up and dance, be my guest. You know what I mean? Just go ahead and just let yourself go. Yeah, um, it's like it's like I'm the host. That's what it feels like. I, I'm the host of a party. And now every project's different. So there's other projects where this may not be as appropriate. But here it's like I have I have these people in my 
um, house for an hour, for hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. And I want everybody to feel welcome. Um, I want people to feel included. I don't want anybody to feel left out. I want people to feel seen and I want people to feel loved and I want people to feel permission to cry or dance or just feel whatever they're feeling. Mm -hmm. um, because those are things I want for my, for myself too. You know, those are things I want for humanity. So it's very natural. It's not something I think about very much. Um, it just feels more of a privilege to be in that position now, like just with after COVID, it feels more like, yeah, this really matters. Yeah, the the uh, another another um, piece that I listened to um, on video was the and one thing that I that I really admired was the interaction that you had with. Um, if I get the name wrong, excuse me, but. Um, uh, Francois Moutin. Yes, perfect. And, and ooh, and Mar Martiel Salak. Oh, Martiel Salal. Salal, yeah, on piano oh. and, and uh, Moutin on bass. Coming yesterday. Yes. Coming yesterday. How was yeah. that? Because those, the, uh, you know, two masters, you, you're working with two masters, you know what I mean? Um, how was that experience? It was a really interesting recording. Um, you know, Francois and I have a duo for almost 10 years now. And this was our first album, um, Interplay. And I invited Sheila as my mentor. And Sheila had done some work with Francois. And she was really the pioneer of the bass voice duo. So we mm -hmm. wanted to include her in this new bass voice duo. And then Francois invited Marcial because Marcial was his mentor um you know and for those of you who don't know marcial is a master of of piano jazz piano um from france he played with um people like lee konitz and many great american musicians and he himself played at newport and village vanguard and so on and he wrote also um scores for movies he wrote um a score for one of the most famous um, movies from France, from contemporary French um, history called um, Breathless. Uh, it's kind of absurdist. It's a very cool movie um, if you haven't seen it. And um, so that recording session was very, um, because Martial's very um, old, I think it might be the last recording he did. He's still alive, but he hasn't recorded since then and he's kind of retired. Um, and so there was no rehearsal. Uh, I flew in from New York and we just kind of met in the studio and I worked on this song of his, which is a pretty hard, uh, like atonal song. And because of his age and hearing, we thought it would be better for us to be in the same room to improvise together. So that means I didn't have any chance to edit what I sang. There was no, I didn't record in, in a booth, which I do most of the time. And then I can fix a pitch or I can change a word if I make a mistake. But here it's like, 
what you see is what you get, which is something very beautiful about that video that you saw because you get to see all the live interaction. And and we didn't edit any of the solo out of it. I mean, so there's parts that are a little slower and then there's part and it tells a story overall. It's really that live experience. And I think knowing that there was no net and I just had, and also that these guys are both masters. Um, it actually gave me the permission to like, let go. Like, it's almost like if I knew I could edit it, then maybe I would try to perfect it or try to, but it's kind of like, all right, I just, I just got to go be who I am. You know, I can't be older than I am. I can't be more experienced. I can't be better. I'm just here right now. And I do the best I can. And, um, and also Marcial is like just so um it was one of the best experiences of my life musically i mean he's um he was so welcoming he was very welcoming to me very so i f- i felt very at home to try things and he would respond to anything i was doing and then of course with francois we already have that relationship um someone just uh, made me very proud as a jazz musician. I just got my first transcription of a solo I did. Um, and this person analyzed the solo that I did on Interplay, the Bill Evans tune that's the title track of my al- of that same album with Francois. And he was saying how in our solo, well, in my solo, I suggested an idea and Francois reacted a split second later and vice versa, like Francois played one note in the bass that was a kind of off note. And then I picked it up like seconds later in my solo, or I did a double time thing. And then he started double time right away. And those are the kind of things, you know, you don't think about in the moment because you're improvising. So you're on a different plane and you're kind of like in your subconscious, but it was kind of cool to see on paper him saying that we actually were telepathic or we actually were like responding in that way. And I think that comes from a lot of trust and experience. And um, I mean, mostly, mostly trust. And part of that trust is something that you build together. Like here's somebody that I respect and I trust and we have a relationship, but some of that trust is also like trusting the unknown um because some even if it's this person that you know really well you don't know what's going to happen and uh that's the beautiful thing about jazz is like it's it's the one place in my life where I'm able to do that I'm not really able to do that always I don't know at home or or in my life but um but it's like the one place where I have permission. I give myself that permission to like lean into the unknown. And there's, there's an excitement about it. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that whatever happens is okay. That's the beautiful thing about it is um, to, to someone like myself, who's just a fan of the music, even for someone like me that's been listening to this music for a long time and seen a lot of live, uh, you know, performances, a lot of live jazz, it was special. 
and I, I play it. Thank goodness I got a work a computer that doesn't crash. I get a chance to play it a lot. And it seems like every time I play it, I hear something different. Mm. You know what I mean? I hear something maybe slightly different, but I was like, wow, did they do that the last time I watched it? And it's a video. I mean, they had to have, but I was just paying more attention. Your voice is beautiful. Thank you so much. Your voice, your voice is just amazing. Um, how many octaves can you hit? Uh, I think it's like four. <laughs> meaning meaning four is the range um but i can hit four but i i have a three octave range yeah 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 man um and someone else that i liked uh your interaction with um was leonel luik luicki yes luicki yeah how is it working with him he's another, oh, I mean, another master he's a genius um He's he's a very special person and musician. Um, he produced my first record, Visions, and I felt he uh, he really understands me because he has the modern jazz language, and he also has comes from Benin, West Africa. He really appreciates and values traditional music practice, and um, he understands both of those things. And he is able to bring them all together in a way that's very unique to him. Um, and I mean, I don't, he's always innovating too. Like he's one of my biggest inspirations because every time I see him, I mean, he's like, you think he's here. And then next time he's here and he's always working on stuff, always pushing, always innovating, always um, expanding. And um He's um, he's been a big champion for me, like from the beginning of my career. And even now, when I have questions, I'll send them to him and ask for his advice. Um, he's like really like a big brother um, and working with him is very easy. I mean, is he's one of the most musical people I know. I mean, it's very seamless. It's very um, you don't have to say anything. It's just kind of like. uh he he knows what to do. He has his ideas and and he's also someone who's of the people I know, probably the most just open to the moment. Mm. Um I think he's learned that a lot from Herbie Hancock. Um, I think that's something that he does a lot with Herbie and he's absorbed from him. But his ability to sort of like be present and go with something and and he doesn't doubt himself in that moment which mm. i i'm not great I mean, i'm working on it but he's very good at putting an idea out there and then mining that idea and it might not work but it might but the worst thing you can do in that moment is sort of doubt it right. you have to go through it with curiosity and i think his ability to do that and not give up on that idea is what makes him great. You've been described, I saw it written, as a um, world citizen. What, is, what does that mean? Um, well, I think we're all world citizens. Um, for me, it's like I don't have this one identity that's very clear to one 
country. The only place that I feel geographically connected and that I can claim is New York. I, I will say the other day I was at a gig and the person in the, where well, there was a Q&A and the person in the audience, he was from Haiti. And he's like, well, I know you're from India and this. And then I was like, I'm from New York. <laughs> that's the only place I'm from. And that's the only place I feel if there were a country uh, or a citizenship of New York City, like that would be me for sure. But I... I feel so close to many different places and many different cultures, whether it's jazz culture or um, music of West Africa, especially Cape Verde, where I've been working for seven years, Brazil, where I lived, um, and which kind of put me on the path of going into the work that I do. Um, my husband's French. I'm about to become a French citizen Oh, nice. It's a place that's very special to me, too. My parents are from India. Of course, India has a special place in my heart. There's things that feel like home. And I think, you know, when I was younger, um, even until recently, all the people that are my idols, I would say they're in a way like a voice of their people. You take Cesaria Evera, she's sort of the voice of Cape Verde. You take Celia Cruz, she's the voice of Cuba. You take Ella Fitzgerald, she's like the... American voice or the black American voice. Um, and I'm saying, well, these are all my idols, but who will I be the voice for? Because I can never be like the voice of India. I didn't grow up there. It's not my only identity. S places like Brazil, Cape Verde, they're not mine. They're never like my native language, my native culture. And so there's a degree to which I'll always be a foreigner there. And for sure in America, first, what is America and what is American music? And um, and what I'm doing is hybrid. You know, it's like always been hybrid. So then I realized, though, that there's so many people like me. And the more that I'm doing my work, the more I'm being approached by people where this is the new reality, um, that people have multiple cultures and multiple multiple identities and they leave a part of themselves in one place and they might move to another place. And this is true for people that are forced to move like refugees or people in exile, but it's also true for just maybe someone who grew up in Montana and left their whole family behind and now lives in Florida. And it's like this, this fragmented identity. And this is only becoming more and more common in the world we live in with the kind of technology we have, with the facility of travel, with remote work. Um, it used to be that you couldn't just take a plane and be in another around the world, like not even 24 hours later, but now you can. And so um, I think what I realized is like, that's the voice, that's the generation that I can represent in my music and with my voice. Um, is other people that don't have one culture, don't have one home. They have these sort of fragments of different ideas, different places, and they're trying to sort of build something with that. And I think for me, as the child of immigrants, I I never fully had access to like that birth culture. And at the same time, even though I'm American and born and raised in New York, people will still say I have an accent. People will still tell me, well, I don't look American. Um, 
people will still, you know, it's a place where for me, I, I always think of like Langston Hughes's poem um, about America. You know that one? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, never, America will never be America to me. Right. Um, because, um, you know, and, and I guess this is like a not popular thing to say, and this is unpatriotic, but I mean, I it's hard to fully accept an identity when you're constantly told that's not your identity. Um, so for me, the place I've always sort of been searching for like a deeper sense of home and the place I've been able to construct it is in, in my music, in getting to know different cultures, in feeling welcomed and um, connecting with people from different places and feeling our common humanity and then incorporating those things that I love in, um, into my life and into my, I mean, even just something like these earrings, I got them. They're from made from Latin American artisans and they're, um, but I bought them in new Orleans and then this dress is from France. And like, you just look around my house and this paintings from India, everything's from a different place. And that's, the life that I've pieced together and made meaning out of. And that's the music that I've made for myself as well. Um, and so um, I hope that I can like reflect that back to other people that have that same experience of life. Um, and I feel that jazz is open enough and loving enough that it has that hybrid history within the history of jazz um, and that history of like people coming together and creating new things that it lends itself as a language um, or as a home base mm -hmm. for that kind of worldview. So that's what I see when I think of being a citizen of the world. Yeah, well, I, I guess I consider myself a citizen of the world too. And I'm going to tell you why. Tell me. Because I was looking at your earrings. I've been looking at your earrings. And I'm thinking to myself, they remind me of some of, of something in Ecuador that I saw before. You know what I mean? And, and you know, doing like a watching a documentary, because I've never been there, but just, you know, watching documentaries on different cultures or whatever. And that, that put me in that mind, you know, of that. And the other thing is I've, I've done features with artists from all over the world so far. I mean, if you peruse like the website, I've done, you know, um, interviews and featured musicians and poets from Finland, from oh, wow. Argentina, from um, Japan, from France, from Canada, from South Africa. I had the, the pleasure and I was, I was just about to go and visit um, uh, Hotep Idris Galeta, the pianist, um, and he, you know, transitioned. Uh, I was just about to go because he said, "Come on, Clayton, this is you've never seen anything like this before." And I was going there, and you know, he transitioned. But you know, just being able to feature and, and speak with different artists from all over the place is just has just been a fantastic experience for me. I would be remiss if I didn't congratulate you on being the 2023-25 Jerome Hill fellow, uh, fellow 
Thank you so much. Can you explain what, what something like that means to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the biggest, um, feels like the biggest recognition I've got in my career. And it's funding for two years to pretty much do whatever I want, um, which has actually been a challenge so far because I have a lot of uh, irons in the fire and I, I, it's hard as an artist to give yourself complete permission to let go or to try something new, but I'm taking it as a challenge, a good challenge. Um, but I think more than anything, it means that um, I'm on the right track. It feels like I'm being recognized for, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an artist that walks the center line. I, I kind of go on my own path and I've been committed to that since the beginning. And I've, try to put out the best quality work. I, you know, try to be the best performer I can be, um, become a better composer and so on. But um, sometimes it means when you kind of do things your own way, it means um, you're not going to get the same like level of commercial success or things are not going to be as easy. But I feel like this recognition for me was like everything you're doing is, is worth it and keep trusting your, inner compass and keep sort of going on your path because it's it's meaningful and it's your work is reaching someone like so, like there's people out there who are great artists that are sitting on the panel of this who get what I'm doing hmm. um, and it made me feel like I'm I'm on the right path um, so it felt like a huge vote of confidence um, in addition to having this great support and you you know in, in kind of getting to the the end you just got finished doing and I just missed you had I known that I would be able to catch you in Baltimore ah. I would have been there because my my son and my you know um my daughter-in-law and my granddaughter they live in Baltimore ah. the next time when you come back from Europe as a matter of fact get the details on on um where you'd be going next uh, yeah, so I will be in Portugal, um, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and then in Cape Verde, November 10th, 11th, and 17th, and then uh, we finish the tour in Paris on December 2nd, and I come back to New York, and I'm playing with a, with my quintet, at uh, my quartet at Mesro in New York City on December 10th. Maybe you can make that one. Oh, I'll be coming... Wait a minute, is it a, it's more than a one night gig, right? It's just one night. It's a Sunday. Oh goodness gracious. I'm <laughs> cruise on the tenth. Oh boy. Boy. And it's if it was if the cruise was leaving from New York, Next I would year. be there. You Next year. I mean? But it's it's covered into Florida, man. So I'm gonna miss that. But um, um but that's what's that's what's coming up and, and we'll be on tour again with the um Cape Verdean Blues project in twenty twenty four. And um I also during the pandemic recorded a new album with my jazz quintet. It's mostly original music, and I hope that will be out in about a year. So these are the things I'm working on at the moment. Um very excited and um yeah, I hope you and your listeners will be able to catch catch some of these shows. Yeah, I'm, I definitely, you know, well, I would like to, um, you know, 
I would like to keep in touch with you so that I could, you know, possibly come so I could get a picture next to Kavita, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I could put up on the website, but, um, you know, it's just fantastic that I got a chance to speak with you today and, and thank you, Clay. Thank you for, thank you for taking the time out uh, from your schedule. Cause I, I saw that your bag was still on the floor. So you got to unpack and then repack and all that kind of stuff. So um, I just wish you the best of luck in all of your thank endeavors. You so much. All of your endeavors. I have one surprise for you. Okay. Um, do you know what Kavita means? No. It means poetry in Hindi. Oh, get out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. Man, oh, man. That, hey, your parents was on the money. They was on the money. <laughs> I thought about it when you were talking about poetry, but I said, let me save this for the end. <laughs> oh, wow. That is, that, is so, that is so cool. That is so cool. Um, so... Thanks again. Don't don't leave yet because I just have a couple of things I want to okay. I want to say to you. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time from your schedule and and your music is beautiful and you're thank beautiful you. and um, I just can't wait to get a chance to to see you in person, do your thing and and you know because I'm enjoying it right now just watching the videos and stuff like that and listening to your music. But I want to catch you live as soon as um, you know another gig in New York opens up or in the surrounding area, wherever it is. If it's kind of close, I'll drive there. It doesn't matter to me. Thank you, Clay. Uh, really, it would be nice if you could come to Philly. Um, well, maybe you can help. I, we we were trying to find a gig, but it was uh, very difficult. So, mm, mm, maybe we maybe you have we'll some ideas. Yeah. Because maybe I could, you know, because I do events and I got one coming up in 2024 in April. Okay. But maybe we could do an event where we could just feature you and your group. That would, that be, would be great. That would, that would be fantastic. But take care and just be safe out here in your travels and tell your family and everyone. There's some guy from Philadelphia said hello. <laughs> and, you know. Thank uh, you, Clay. You know what I mean? And and if so your listeners want to sign up for my mailing list, if they want to find out about upcoming shows, they can do that at kavitashahmusic.com, K-A-V-I-T-A-S-H-A-H, music.com. And I'm also on Instagram or Facebook. My Instagram is at Kanta Kavita, C-A-N-T-A-K-A-V-I-T-A. Okay. And I'll, you know, I'll make sure that I post all of that information on the SOJP website. And so you'll be all over the place. I'm going to feature your, your music for the whole month of November. Oh, wonderful. So it'll be up there and um, um, people can get a chance to feel joy, feel gem, <laughs> feel joy like I do when I'm listening to your music. So thanks again. Thank you, Clay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here at Spotlight Conversations. The wonderful Kavita Shah joined us, and, and she's just fantastic. And I'll see you next time right here on Spotlight Conversations. Bye now. <laughs>